was a lot of songs. Those kids do amazing. Well, good morning. Boy, we see the kids like that, and we wonder why, as Christians, we are optimistic and filled with joy. Isn't that great, seeing all those kids? You know, I've been asked, uh, been asked, great, I've been asked in the past, sometimes I'm more positive in my theology than confrontational, and that's because the Bible is a comedy, not a tragedy. The good guy wins. In fact, the good guy has already won. Right? We're going to see that again today. Anyway, it's, a, um, uh, it's just wonderful to see all the kids up here. Every time I just, every time I even have a little bit of doubt, I just got to go hang out in the Sunday school classrooms and I change my perspective. Looking at the kids, the future of tomorrow. Okay, on the back is a lot of announcements that relate to this week that you should be aware of. Right up, up the front, we have a community night tomorrow night. Now, we did this three years ago. Every three years, we do a ministry plan where we're thinking about what we want to do in the next three years and where we want to be three years from today. One of the things we wanted to do is respond to the culture. I am absolutely convinced that the healthiest churches in the West, in today's world, in our country, have to be agile because the culture is throwing stuff at us constantly, and we need to be current on what's happening and be willing to flex and adjust and change so every three years, we invite the community leaders in, uh, I don't know, the police chief, fire chief, mayor, a bunch of other people come, and uh, they get a chance to share with us what's going on in their area, what challenges they face, and how we might pray for them, as well as help them, since we're planning a three-year uh, cycle. So I think last time, three years, we had like 60, 70 of you come, and it was a really educational, very informative night, so I'd love to encourage you to come out tomorrow night. It's tomorrow night. Right here, okay? And you'll get to hear from them. So think about that. Put it on your calendar. This is Palm Sunday, hence all the palms, right? The beginning of Holy Week. It's also the last Sunday in our series on sin. Some of you are going, yes, finally. Next Sunday we get the Resurrection Sunday when uh, the Lord conquers all of it. And so next Sunday, Easter, will be a very great time of rejoicing. But in between those times, we have Monday, Thursday, this Thursday. That's all in the back here at 6 p.m. here in the sanctuary. And then Friday night for Good Friday, we have a Seder dinner. And so we've created this week to help you learn a little bit about what happened this week during Jesus' life, uh, during Passion Week, during Holy Week. And so I would love to invite all of you to come out and join us for that and just get a taste of a flavor, a sense of what was going on that week in Jesus' life. And then on the 23rd, we have an inquirer's class. For those of you that want to learn more about our church, you can sign them out there or just let the office know or let me know. If you want to know about our church, uh, why do we believe what we do? Why do we do the things we do? And that's where we'll talk about it. We do this four times a year. Okay, I'd like to pray in just a moment, but we next Friday we have a team leaving for Haiti, don't we? So if you're part of that team, come on up. I think there's like 11 or 12 that go every year, and we have a few here. There's one. Wait, you're leaving? Hey, did, I, did I sign off on that? Did I give you permission? <laughs> Why don't you tell them what's going on? So there's 10 of us going. And tell them who you are. I'm Cindy McDonald. I'm the trip leader. <laughs> and um, there are 10 of us going. 
we leave next Friday, Good Friday, and so um, we'll be in church at Haiti on Easter, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, I think it'll be fantastic. So think about us, pray for us. Our boxes that we shipped in February still haven't arrived. So really, really pray about that. Um, it will sort of be like Jesus with the loaves and the fishes if they don't get there before we do. Now, what are you doing in Haiti? We are doing a medical clinic there. It's um, on the grounds of Haitian Christian Ministries in Piat, which is a small village outside of Cap Haitian, um, which is the northern part of Haiti, um, far away from um, you know all the rubble and stuff that was hit a couple years ago um, during the earthquake, but still um, an area of poverty and people who need to know Christ. Um, so we will be working five days in the clinic there alongside with the Haitian staff. Um, we see an average of 100 to 150 patients a day. Um, we may have an opportunity to go work in the prison a half day. Um, but another exciting thing that's happening is um, they've been doing some church planting um, in the past year, um, which is something new for them. They've been um, trying to do this for a long time, and all of a sudden, some young gentlemen from the seminary down in Haiti have volunteered to go and preach on Sundays um, in these two different areas outside of the Piat community. Um, we will be hopefully hosting a clinic at the other church that is run by HCM called the Lori Church. We went there one day last year and it was very fruitful. We saw probably 110 people in a matter of three hours. We had to turn some people away which is always um, sad when we have to do that. So hopefully we'll get to spend two afternoons there this year and see everybody. And what's in these boxes that you're waiting on? The boxes that we shipped, um, some are sponsored gifts for, for children that are sponsored by um, people in our church. Mostly medications, over-the-counter meds, um, um, bandages, braces, all kinds of medical supplies. And then... Um, you know, a little bit of food to help the community out. I only have one more question. Have you actually seen Stefan with a scalpel? <laughs> no, but um, I've seen you with a scalpel. <laughs> he makes a good position. He's coached. <laughs> Cut here. No, no, not here. The dotted line. No. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'd like to uh, pray for you. Father, I do pray for the team. There's only three of them, and I know there's uh, others gathering from around the country and some from our own church. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them safety this Friday. Um, it's always, there's always risk involved in going to another country, especially a third world country. And I just pray that you would go before them, protect them, watch over them. And I pray, Lord, that you would open the doors wide for ministry, not only the physical ailments to help people with diseases and sicknesses and and medical issues that need to be tended to. But, Father, uh, there will be uh, such an opportunity for spiritual illness as well. And I pray that you would bless them as they're just loving on these people. They'll pray with some of them. They'll talk to them. They'll encourage them and watch over them. And, Father, I pray that this team, that I know many of them are veterans, have gone before, and others are brand new. I pray that you would show yourself to each of them in very new and refreshing ways. Let them come back having learned something about you that they hadn't seen before. Thank you for giving us, as a church, the privilege of praying for them, partnering with them, watch over them, keep them safe. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Excellent. I had the privilege of going last year 
and it was a it was a very very rewarding trip, very tiring trip. They work a lot while they're gone. Uh, I remember every day when we got to the clinic, there was a hundred people outside at least standing there. And so um, I learned really quickly the first day. I just went out with a translator and said, "I'm a pastor. If anybody wants to pray," and they all line up. Hour and a half, two hours later, I'm done praying, and they put me to work. So I uh, got to go in and pray with people when they were having like minor surgeries and things like that. And just encourage them. So it's a lot of work. So we will continue to pray for you guys. And I would encourage you to put that on your prayer list this week and next week. Just lift them up as they get ready to go and as they're gone. And that God will keep them safe and would use them. Okay, today is Palm Sunday. As you saw with all the palms, uh, the beginning of Holy Week. And I'm going to read the story to you out of John chapter 12. Palm Sunday, this experience, is written in all four of the Gospels that says something about its importance that all four authors decided to reflect on it. I'm going to read the John account, John 12, verse 12. So John 12, 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So this is the Passover festival. In fact, we're going to celebrate that Friday evening with the Seder dinner. Three times a year, all the men of the nation were required to gather together. So Jerusalem filled up, overflowing with people. Um, we know from historical records that they almost always brought their families. And God said that when you come, I'll protect your crops and your animals and your farms. I'll watch over them. You all come gather and worship. So these were great times of great celebration and great uh, uh, festivals, a lot of laughing and dancing and things like that. And so Jesus now is there all the crowd is gathered and Jesus is, is on his way to Jerusalem. Verse 12, verse 13. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. So Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion, see your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand this. Why wouldn't they understand it? What happened that they didn't understand? Well, the term Hosanna, it had become by this time, it is a command, save us, it's a a wish, save us, an expression of a desire. But by this time, it had become a political expression, save us, rescue us from the Romans. And so Jesus, they're honoring him as king, like all kings, comes into the city on a donkey. Is that what kings do? What do kings ride in on? Warriors. What do they ride in on? Not donkeys. No wonder the, the disciples are going, huh? We don't get it. It's, this, it's, it's letting us know that things are very different than what the people are asking for. They're asking for a king that's going to break the Roman oppression and come serve, and he rides in on a donkey. It changes everything. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to spread the word. Just before this, uh, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And people in Jerusalem, they heard about it and they're all, I mean, just buzz all over the city. And they wanted to come and hear him and see him. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. All right, so here's the question. Why were the Pharisees not excited about his entrance into Jerusalem? 
Why? Why by the end of the week are they shouting, crucify him? In fact, how did it happen that all these people that are waving the palm branches by the end of the week are shouting, crucify him? What happened? What happened? We're coming to the end. This is our last Sunday in our series on sin. Not the way it's supposed to be. That's the title. I told you I took that title from Cornelius Plantinga's book. And I've been referring to him throughout the series. Not the way it's supposed to be. That's not what we're created for. And I raised the question early on. and We've talked about it several times. Do you see God as a big killjoy in the sky that's trying to limit you, control your life, give you rules to follow? Is that how you observe him? Kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Things are going well. That means it's going to go bad pretty soon. Or do you see God as a divine creator who actually created you and knows how you're wired and what he really desires is your deepest joy and he knows the best way to get there? Which way do you see him? However you see him is going to dictate how you respond to sin and what you think of sin. Is sin a bunch of rules? Is that all it is? Or is sin, the identification of sin, a blessing from the Lord to help us avoid things. Is it good that our kids avoid drugs? I think it is. I have one that didn't. And life was really hard for him. It's good. Sin is there. The identification of sin is there for a reason, for our protection. So today as we move further into the discussion of sin, we're going to talk about how sin causes the loss of unity. Sin causes a loss of unity. Now think about where we've come. Thus far, we have seen that sin leads to the loss of shalom, both individually and corporate. Shalom is that sense of peace, that sense of well-being, what we were created for. And uh, we lose that when sin enters into the picture. It leads to the corruption of the soul, the filling up of the soul with pollution, with, with things that we don't feel good about. It causes a disintegration of the spirit, um, one of the play, great places we see that is in our marriages and relationships and our community. Everything just disintegrates. Everything comes apart. We saw uh, two weeks ago the wearing of masks. There I said that, that in order for sin to be successful, it has to masquerade as good. It has to. If you saw sin in all of its rawness, who would want that? Nobody. Who wants to destroy families, marriages, relationships, physical health, emotional health, mental health. Who wants to destroy that? And so sin has to masquerade as good. And so that's what we learned from the beginning. We have a good teacher. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. We put on masks so that people don't see the truth about us. We make ourselves look good when often on the inside, uh, there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of loneliness. There's a lot of hurt, all these other things. That's what sin does. It eats away on the inside of us. Then last week we talked about uh, the tragedy of addiction, that we get into the habit of these sins and we live them out over and over again and we create patterns. We're actually going to look at that uh, today. So as we look at the loss of unity, every sin leads in this direction. Every sin leads to it. Do not be deceived. There is no such thing as private sin. Communication specialists tell us that when we communicate back and forth to one another, only 10 to 15% of what we say is, comes in our words, the words that we use. The other 85% has to do with tone of voice, body language, uh, all that sort of stuff, the nonverbal communication. The bulk of our communication is nonverbal. Here's what that means. 
you cannot hide. You may think that you're mad at someone, but you're the only one that knows it. It is not true. You may think that you look at someone with a little bit of disgust, but you cloak it behind a mask and they don't know that. It's not true. It's an illusion. Every one of you is aware when you're with people, you have that sense of whether they like you or whether they're pretending. Every one of you has that sense. It's intuitive. God made us so we can't hide. Every one of us lives in a fishbowl. Don't buy into the illusion, the illusion, the deceit that it's all up here but not out here. It's not true. It's not true. The answer in Scripture is not to cloak it behind a mask. The answer is to transform the heart, your heart. That's why Christ has all that language in there about doing good to others. Love your enemies, turning the other cheek. That's a transformation inside of you so that your nonverbal parts are communicating the reality that you actually care about people, even your enemies. Even your enemies. So every, every sin leads to a loss of unity. Everyone. I want to focus on one in particular, and that's the sin of envy, because I think that explains this passage and what the Pharisees did. So we're going to trace envy through the Bible. We could do it with any sin. We could take all the sin lists, there's a bunch of them, and take one Sunday per sin and spend the next two years tracing them through the Bible. But we don't need to, because envy will serve as a paradigm, as a model for understanding how sin destroys relationships. So first of all, what is envy? What is it? Envy is an emotion which occurs when a person lacks another's superior quality, achievement, or possession. So it's, it's an emotion inside of us which occurs when a person lacks someone else's superior quality, achievement, or possession, and either desires it or wishes that the other lacked it. So let's look in the Bible. Let's take a moment and talk about envy. You know, envy is one of the sins that runs the entire length of the human fault line. It's present everywhere. It's an ugly sin. It forms a basis for other ugly sins. It leads to such behaviors as lying, causing harm, ignoring others, bullying others, and many, many more. It's found, for example, in the classic love triangles, a genre that we see over and over again in the media. Love triangles, and we read about in the papers. It's envy. It's, uh, it's found in the quest to be number one. With no peer. I'm the best, and you fill in the blank. There is in the world. Envy means you don't want to share that podium with anyone else. You want to be number one. That's a form of envy. But it's a story that we've heard long ago. It's a crime story, actually. And it's so old and deep in our race, its first episode occurs almost as soon as human beings begin to sin. In fact... It appears in the first passage that even uses the word sin, Genesis 4. So I'm going to read to you the first story where envy pops up, Genesis 4, verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on favor with Abel in his offering, but on Cain in his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Envy is beginning to surface. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, not, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. 
So if you do what is right, won't you be accepted too? This is the story of communion. Jesus extends Passover to Judas and to Peter and the rest. He treated them equally. He just gave Cain another chance. If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Last week we talked about Romans 7 and the plight that we have, as a, especially as a non-Christian, wanting to do things and we're just caught in this eternal war inside. Sin has control. It's not until a person turns to Christ that they even have a chance of breaking that stronghold, that stranglehold that sin has on us. When they turn to Christ, when you turn to Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit that allows you to make changes and transform. And here it is right here. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. It's a story that we've heard before. When Cain was rejected, he got angry. He didn't get puzzled. He got angry. He didn't get humbled. He didn't humble himself. You see, Cain now looks at Abel and no longer sees his brother. What he sees now is a rival. Not somebody to love and lift up, but somebody who needs to be cut down to size. This is part of the core behind envy. From this story, we learn a key feature of envy. One who envies doesn't care whether you have earned part of your success or whether you were gifted with success. It doesn't matter. To one who envies, your advantage is totally unfair either way. Envy has a little bit of entitlement built into it. And every one of us has a little bit of envy somewhere inside. Somewhere. You see somebody that has something that you wonder, why did they get that? Why do they have the better spouse? Why is their marriage a little better? How do they deserve that? How come their kid's a little more gifted? How'd they get that promotion at work? We could go on and on and on. All of us have a little bit of it built in. The effect of this sin is to cause the loss of unity with another person because you begin to despise them. And it's not an isolated case. What happened with... uh, Cain and Abel. It represents a paradigm of sin that's woven all throughout the Bible. The pattern occurs over and over and over again. Think with me for just a moment about Jacob and Esau. For you, those of you that know the story, there's envy there. One wants the birthright, steals it deceitfully from the other. Leah and Rachel fighting for the love of one man, Jacob. And they begin to despise each other and they begin to trick each other. Envy. Isaac and Ishmael and their mothers. The mothers hated each other, began to despise each other. Joseph and his brothers sold into Egypt, into slavery, right? They were jealous of him. They were jealous because he was the favored son. And so they kidnapped him and sold him into slavery. Saul and David. I want to say a word about Saul and David because that's kind of a paradigm that helps us flesh out a little bit more about this concept of of, uh, envy. It's pretty much the whole story of 1 Samuel, at least the second half of it. We learn much about envy. You see, David is a teenage shepherd, and you know the story. He comes along and slays Goliath, the Philistine, the giant, around 10 feet tall maybe. Walks, he's just a little guy, just a little guy with five stones, and he walks up with a sling and slays the giant. In the process of slaying the giant, we emphasize in the Sunday school, appropriately so, faith in God. He walks up and he goes, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who's taunting the armies of God? 
God will take care of that, and God did. So we talk about courage and faith and all that, but behind the scenes, what happens is he becomes the rival to the king, King Saul. You never want to upstage the king. You just don't want to do that. For years, Saul had been Israel's undisputed war hero. He always led in the battle. Not now. David has just proven he is clearly a more gifted killer than Saul. Saul's not the one that went out and attacked him. David was. So Saul, who is now an older warrior, he's toward the end of his life, he begins to feel this envy stirring within him toward this young, gifted man. He begins to feel that envy stirring. How appalling it must have sounded to him when he comes back into town and he hears the crowds roaring for David and the women begin to sing these words. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Wow. How quickly the glory departs when you age. And that's what Saul happened to Saul. And that envy is stirring within him. So here's what we're told. Saul was very angry for this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've only ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day on. Saul began to keep a close eye on David. Why? Envy. Envy. David's popularity is rising. Saul's is declining. The very next day, David tries to calm the storms raging inside of Saul by playing his lyre for him. Yes, in addition to being a gifted warrior, he's a gifted musician on top of it. What does Saul do? Does he relax? No, he tries to kill him. tries to pin him to the wall with a spear. There's an example of what envy does. So Plantinga says, the story of Cain and Abel anticipates the story of Saul and David. So Cain and Abel, what happened? That's the paradigm that we see fulfilled with Saul and David. In fact, the original story of envy anticipates a pattern woven into all of humanity into a whole race that has been banished from paradise. That's envy. Now remember, I'm just choosing one sin today to help you understand the destructiveness. Every sin we could take through this journey in the scriptures and see it. So what do we learn about envy from all this? Well, first... What an envier wants is not, first of all, what another person has. So one who envies, that's not what they're after. What one who envies wants is for another not to have it. Envy is a very close cousin to coveting. They run on parallel tracks with some very subtle differences when you get down into the crux, the deeper part of the sin. For example, to covet is to want somebody else's goods so strongly that you're tempted to steal it. In contrast, envy is to resent somebody else's goods so much that you're tempted to destroy it. One who covets has empty hands and wants to fill it with somebody else's goods. One who envies has empty hands and therefore wants to empty the hands of the one they envy. They want to cut them down to size. Envy speaks about personal resentment toward the one who has been blessed. One who envy resents. One who covets desires. See the subtle differences? 
between the two? Very destructive. But why think of someone else's goods as an injury to yourself? Why even think that way? Where's that come from? Aside from a fallen nature, I think the core of it is pride. Pride. The core of envy is the desire to cut somebody else down to size. It's more than just taking what they have. It's more than that. See how destructive that is? Envy appears in the list in the scripture along with murder and strife, Romans 1. Debauchery, that's that idea of wasting your life. Drunkenness, carousing, all debauchery and dissension, Romans 13. Discord and jealousy, 2 Corinthians 12. Strife, evil suspicions, frictions, 1 Timothy 6. And there's other places. These are all devastating sins, all of them. They, they're a cluster of sins that destroy unity. Listen again to them. It's alongside murder, strife, debauchery, dissension, discord, jealousy, strife, evil suspicion, friction. These sins, they attack the very core of a group, a community. They attack the shalom that we're expected to feel, we desire to feel. They hurt. They tear us apart. They destroy relationships. They take apart the very thing that we're working for, working toward shalom. All right, let's go back to Jesus in John 12. Why were the Pharisees not excited about his his, uh, his entrance into Jerusalem? I would suggest that it's envy. You see, they're concerned that the whole world, that's what they call it, has gone out after him. Now, in John, the Gospel of John, the term world, this word world, it commonly refers to people everywhere, but people who are lost. For example, you know the famous passage in John 3.16 and 17, For God so loved the world. Very good, Simon. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Praise God. This is why I'm an optimistic theologian. Christ didn't come to condemn. He came to save. He came to show grace. He came to forgive. He came to redeem. That's why he came. There's an example of how this idea of world is used. So when the, when the Pharisees say the whole world has gone after him, they're actually unwittingly fulfilling the reason why Jesus came. They're showing that. The whole world's going after him. Well, that's why he came, was to go after the whole world. And the amazing thing with Jesus is that it includes everybody who spits on him, mocks him, treats him with derision, hates him, his enemies, the ones who execute him, the ones who flog him. He loved them all. We have a model appearing. In this story, they're turning to Jesus. And the Pharisees could not handle his growing popularity. They just couldn't handle it. The story of all the Gospels from the beginning to end, one of the subtexts is that the leadership is becoming more and more opposed and despised at what Jesus is doing. In fact, in the chapter before, just after he raises Lazarus from the dead, they had already decided to kill him. Chapter 11, verse 45 
still in John. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, they believed in him. They believed in him. Mark and I have joked many times that uh, if there was a church that met your needs better than us, we would give you all up in a heartbeat because our first concern is to see you grow spiritually. We would. And they're going to Jesus. And the Pharisees don't like that. Some of them went and told the Pharisees what had happened, what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. So now you have the leadership together. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. There it is right there. Envy. He's winning the hearts of the people, and the result is they're going to lose their security and their livelihood, and they don't like that. So they plotted to kill him. They had already decided to kill him when this time came, but they're stuck. They're stuck because the people liked what Jesus was doing. And if they just overtly went and got him uh, and, res- and, uh, and tried to execute him, the people would turn against him and cause riots. And they couldn't do that. So they have this envy growing, and they're plotting very devious ways every step of the way. When you read the whole, pa- the whole story from John 12 to the end of John, his crucifixion, that's all happened in a week. At the end of the week, the whole nation is now crying out, all the Jews crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Wow. To turn away from God, we have no king but Caesar. And they crucified him and the whole nation was involved in it and complicit. This is an example of what envy does to a group of people. So what do we do about it? Well, Romans 13. In the passage, it's one of the sin lists. In Romans 13, we should never be afraid of the sin list, by the way. Remember, these are things that God is trying to do to protect us. We're not to avoid them. Let's jump into them. At the end of this sin list, in Romans 13, 14, he kind of gives the answer. Uh, He says, first of all, verse 13, let us behave decently, not in carousing drunkenness in this whole long list. Rather, here it is, clothe yourselves. Picture putting on this coat, this cloak. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. We talked about last week, walking by the Spirit. Clothe yourself, clothe yourself with Jesus. Put your trust in Him. Learn what it means to love others. In this case, stop envying. It's very challenging to wish someone who has something better than you a blessing. Our natural tendency, because of pride and sinfulness, is to say, why them? I deserve that too. Is that natural? In case you wonder, look at your kids. They're experts at it. They learned it well, by the way. And the answer is to put on Jesus. And to begin to walk by the Spirit. And to learn how to say to someone else, bless you. I wish you well. Envy is so destructive. And that's just a paradigm. Every sin, if we trace it from beginning to end, we'd see the same pattern. It destroys relationship and destroys unity. We will always be a church 
to show grace and redemption, but we'll also always be a church that deals with sin. We don't mind jumping into it with people. We really don't. Father, thank you. Thank you for just for being who you are. Somehow in your grace, your mercy, your wisdom, even in spite of our sinfulness, you still loved us well. Thank you. Thank you for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen.